Welcome to episode 10 of the Beyond Podcast, where we have conversations with people who we find inspiring, who might inspire you too. Our special guest for today's episode is Chris Rathbun. Chris is a recent graduate of the Warden School at the University of Pennsylvania, where he earned a Bachelor of Science in Finance and Business Analytics. Chris currently hosts and produce, produces the Zoom Innovators in Business series, where he conducts interviews with leaders, entrepreneurs, slash innovators to ask them for advice for college, where each interview is dedicated to a charitable organization. He is also the founder of the Yearbook app, a digital yearbook. In the past, he has also served as the editor-in-chief of the Penn Innovators in Business, data analyst and operations intern for a presidential campaign, investment slash equity research intern for the Bering Global Educational Foundation, China Regional Coordinator for the World Bank Group on the Ideas of Action Initiative, and finally, Policy and Advocacy and Government Relations Intern for Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Welcome, Chris. How's it going? Thank you so much for the amazing introduction. Um, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Um, you've recently graduated from like Warden, and I guess as someone who's graduating, um, next spring, I guess, what advice do you have for um, college students um, from freshmen to seniors on like tips to like make the most out of college in general? Hmm. Wow, I have so much to talk about on that. But um, I think the first advice, what made my college career um, so meaningful in some way is I tried to learn as much as possible. I went in with a mindset of um, carpe diem, right? like living life to the fullest and, and, and taking as many classes as I, as I could. So on top of the classes that I did um, and for my normal coursework, I would, every year I would try to audit four or five other courses. Um, and these were often courses in the law school or MBA classes that undergraduate students weren't allowed to go in, but because of Penn's structure, it allowed me to like jump into a class or at least talk to the professor and, and ask them if I could just listen into the class. And from every day, usually from like nine to 6 p.m., I would be in class after class after class, listening to things from art history to laws on contracts to um, how to do creativity and to all these courses that I would not have had the opportunity to take if I was just an undergraduate level student. And by maximizing your opportunity, you're paying the same tuition. I just mm. was able to like sit into more classes. You were able to learn so much. And the best part is there wasn't really homework if you're auditing a class. So you could like listen to all the best knowledge and the best insights from these amazing professors. And at the same time, do very little work, but, but, but learn. Mm, that's super smart. And I guess like what, um... What types of courses did you try to take outside of your major? Was it just out of curiosity, like, oh, I'm interested in art history, so I'm going to take an art history class um, this semester? What, like, what was the process for choosing classes outside of your major? Mm. Um, yes, so at the beginning of every semester, I would go through the entire course list, um, and then I would just search words that I was interested in at that time, like, being a sophomore year, I was interested in blockchain. So I searched for all the classes that had the word blockchain in it. Um, or, and then these came up with like design classes or, or law school classes that that's really, I had no, no knowledge about, but the professors are usually extremely nice and kind. And I would be sitting in with students who are third year law students um, from around the world. And, and they're talking about these incredibly complicated terms. And I'm just in the, in the back, like, like listening and absorbing and, and having a good time. But, but by doing this, it forced me to introduce myself to a lot of new things. Gotcha. So it seems like you were exposed to like a breadth of um, concepts and like majors and all these interesting things during college. I guess like now that you've graduated from college, is, is there a certain area you're most interested in now? And how has this like diverse background in terms of education um, helped you be the person you are now? Hmm. Hmm. I think it's a, there's like two debates going on, um, right, to, to opposing views. Um, one is you want to uh, creates a way to be very, very structured and be very, very focused on one subject and have a very, very depth in, in that subject. And I think 
a lot of times like engineering students or, or law students are, are very focused in, in that area. Um, and then there is this other aspect that a lot of newer entrepreneurs and, and different innovators are, are promoting as like a range of expertise, having the understanding and having knowledge on different subjects. So you can mix and match and, and, and tie these things together. Um, I think both are incredibly useful. In my case, I much more took on the range side of, um, of the range approach of learning as much as I could. And it is true right after college because everything is like very, very specified. You have to look for a career in, in data analysis of like a specific thing with a specific experience. It's much harder to find a job that is tailored for you. But if you push and if you try hard enough, there, there are ways to to expand your network and find a role that that's leverages all their skill sets. Mm, that's a good way to, I guess, frame it. Um, like where like you could like focus on like one area. And, and I think that's really risky. Like for me as an engineer, I also focus on breadth during college. Like I took a bunch of like seemingly random courses in CS that mm -hmm. wasn't like specific to like one area. Like for example, like blockchain, like you mentioned, or specifically like databases. Like I didn't focus on one area. I wanted to do get exposed to as many facets of computer science so that I don't regret like following one path because I still don't really know like which area I'm most passionate about. Um, and I think that's super comforting to hear like your experiences at Penn. Um, I guess like, let's explore that debate a little bit more about, I guess, going for depth versus going for breadth um, as like a young professional. Um, I guess, what is your, um, I guess, mindset around that? Um, being yourself like a young professional, someone who recently like graduated, um, are, are you still leaning towards the side of exploring as much as possible? Or are you now trying to pivot more to like, oh, I'm gonna focus most of my energy in like one area now and try to get as much domain experience there? Mm. Um, I try to hold on to both ships at the same time. It, it's hard, but um, actually I'm, I'm applying for graduate school inside something connected to data science or uh, global development. Um, and it is what I've realized through my four years at Penn, the two subject areas that I feel like the most suitable to me. And that's partially coming from that range of experiences through undergraduate, through taking all these courses, I was able to narrow it down to two specific things. Uh, you can see I'm still two specific things. So, so there's, and it's pretty far off things. Data analysis doesn't have so much connection with with international development, but um, I realized that those are some of the things that that's really um, intrigued me the most. But at the same time, um, when I'm cooking at home, uh, when I'm like washing dishes, I, I put on something that that's very very uh, out of the ordinary. Like for example, I put on um, podcasts by different leaders and innovators. I put on um, uh, what is it called? Masterclass videos on how to cook, on how to play poker, on how to uh, play chess, and, and and trying to learn as much as I can about other things as I'm I'm trying to focus in on on, on something else. Mm, gotcha. That's super super interesting. Um, and yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit more about I guess outside of academics. What were like some um, key experiences slash lessons that. Um, helped you like along the way um, to, I guess, find your own rhythm, find your own balance and find like those two passions like um, data analytics and international relations, right? Um, mm. Like what helped you find those two passions and those areas for you? So I think data, data analytics came directly from college, just experiences doing um, doing classes and that and realizing that how useful a skill it is. International development came from a much longer um, backstory. Um, so my background is I was born in Japan and then I grew up for half my life in Beijing, China. And um, from for seven years, I lived in a hotel. It was called the Friendship Hotel. Um, it's housed me, my, my parents and a range of different diplomats, journalists from around the world who, who stayed in this like small place in Beijing because they wanted all the foreigners to, to live in a similar area. So the community I was in and, and every day I would go downstairs to play in the playground. And at this time, 
I was very young, of course, like around seven, but all the friends I was playing with was like a mini United Nations. Uh, there was students from, or children from Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, um, Japan, UK, South Africa, um, Canada, and, and uh, it was incredibly diverse and everybody, you spoke in English, but, but I could learn so much about different people and different um, cultures. Um, and I remember very, very clearly the, the day before the Iraq war started, my best friend at the time was called Ramos and their family came um, from, from Iraq during the middle of the war. And the reason was they, uh, actually before the war and because they were trying to find um, equipment because the, the boy Ramos had asthma. So they needed um, medical attention and medical equipment to, to help him. Um, and they couldn't find that inside Iraq. So they came to China to, to try to escape that. And he was my next door neighbor and became one of my best friends, the, the kids. Um, so the day before the Iraq war started, my family and I knocked on their door and, and then we agreed that night that whatever happened between the two countries, um, the next day we would remain friends. And um, from that point on, um, I went to a primary school in China as the only foreign student. I went to a international private school uh, for, with, with people who are much, much, much more wealthier than me. And then I went to a inner city school district in Las Vegas, which was every few days we would have a, a warning or an alert that, that potentially was a very, very dangerous area. Um, but, and, and I believe education, but throughout that, I was able to try to adapt into every situation because the very, very early lesson with that boy, I was able to empathize and understand their situation and try to match my own personal growth and my, my own personal life stepping into their shoes. I think that was the most important thing. And, and with that boy and I still continue to be very good friends to this day. That's such a, like, a fascinating um, story and really heartwarming as well, how you stayed in touch with um, that kid that you met like way back when, when you were in China. Um, I'm curious to hear more about your experiences in, I guess, first starting with China and then in, in Las Vegas, specifically exploring the idea of like how you learned and kept that notion of the importance of empathy. Um, I, I, I think like you mentioned, like that one experience was something that was really pivotal for you. Mm -hmm. um, but how was it like growing up in that primary school in China where you were surrounded by people who were a lot different than you, it seems like a lot wealthier, mm -hmm. like how was that experience and that contrast for you, like growing up in that sort of academic environment? Mm. So every, every journey had its own tremendous challenges. So the first journey was I was an American who, who spoke okay Chinese, but, but but not, not the best. And then I was in the top primary school in Beijing, China, the, the, the mm -hmm. primary school that every single student wants to go into. These were kids who were extremely talented um, and, and I somehow passed the, the entrance exam, I'm not sure why, um, but it was a very interesting experience. Like in a traditional primary school, you, you wear a certain uniform um, every other every Monday and then you raise your hands with your hands or with your both hands on your table and then with one hand goes up you only raise a hand in a specific way most of the time you put your hands behind your back when you're listening to class um, it's a very very different system but throughout that system I was able to actually adapt very well and became a very very Chinese kid like like from my demeanor from my uh, voice from from what I did so it's very very Chinese but what changed that was I was I was playing tennis very, very frequently. And then I wanted to go into a round that I could play tennis more. But while my classmates were staying in primary school, mind you, uh, at fourth grade, we're staying at like 7 p.m. Um, to, to study for things, I wanted to go to play tennis. And then the teacher was very upset. So my parents decided that maybe it's a it's a good chance to, to move into a a school that could allow me to pursue tennis more. And I went to a private international school. And this is, again, it's the Tsinghua International School. It's um, a part of the best university in China. And then the, the international people who could get into the school were, were of course, much more wealthier and, and, and 
well, very well, well connected. And I was just a regular student in, in this atmosphere and I had to learn to adapt everything in my life again to try to transform into what, what they're interested in and what they did and find myself like empathizing and, and, and seeing their way of life and then trying to like, see how my life could fit in as well. And then moving into the United States at 15, I left, uh, my parents were still in Beijing and I came to the United States to live with my aunt and uncle at that time. Um, and it was another incredibly new experience. I, I've never, the first day I, I came to school, I remember there was a good friend now that, that was talking about their summer experience of they were throwing axes on a tree. And, and then I was thinking the first day of school, wow, where did I get myself into? I was in this like, like very, very nice school with, with people who are very respectful. And now I'm coming to a place where people spend their time still throwing axes on a tree. Um, anyways, I turned out to be very, very good friends with, with everybody in the school. And then most everybody in the school and and had a great experience but um it was a long winding journey to get there mm. yeah that is super super interesting i i think like your whole journey it seems like a connecting theme was you were able to adjust to um the current environment really well like whether it was like adjusting in china or like adjusting in the usa even though you had that initial like cultural shock um, I guess like when you, when you adjusted to college, was there a similar sort of adjustment you have to make, or since you were in the U S it was a little bit smoother for you? So because I had an experience of adjusting very frequently, college was just one, one more chance of doing that. And adjustments never become easier really it's, it's always a new experience it's always new people and there's always the chance that everything goes wrong um but luckily i've had i had very very good friends going in um i like nathan who i met through the coca-cola scholarship um who is ethan's brother uh and and a lot of other people who i could quickly just learn from and 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 adapt to. And I think that was very key to, to helping me get to that stage of being close and, and understanding other people as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then when you started college, it seems like you were part of a lot of like great organizations and initiatives. Um, what were some of the projects that you worked on that, um, that you're super proud of now that uh, you can reflect back on it uh, now that you've graduated? What are some of those key mm -hmm. projects that you're proud of um leading or being a part of yeah this is another um very important point that i want everybody listening to to, to understand too um i did you can see my resume or the the the, the laundry the laundry list of things that ethan brought up but um i didn't get into any club uh, so at at UPenn, there's this like very very tough system of club applications. And in my freshman year, I applied to 25, 30 things. And I didn't get into anything. Um, it, it was pretty shocking. I, I, I was a valedictorian in my school. I was pretty good in different things. But even things I was very passionate about, like tennis, I played a long time and couldn't even get into the tennis club. And I was like questioning my entire like existence, like what is happening? Um, and it never really changed. I, I don't think like club applications were still very, very difficult, but all the clubs that I was a part of, nearly all the clubs I created on my own. <laughs> so that's um, a way to turn around a, a, a difficult situation um, into making it um, more suitable or to, to, to making the best of it. Mm -hmm. um, um, and then, so from everything from um, this, the Global Research and Consulting Club, which this one person asked, like, if I want to be a part of like the initial team, and I said, okay, um, to uh, this, in sophomore year, I started to come up with an idea that, oh, like, there's no, like, I see these, like, very, very old executives that have come into Penn, but none of the students ever, like, talk to them, like, why isn't there any, like, connection with the undergraduate students and the executives, and then that day, instead of doing my statistics homework, I went back and registered for a club name called 
think the Penn Executive Education Undergraduate Relationship Council. Uh, and, and even though it was a very, very strange name, with this name could contact different people into the executive department and schedule meetings and eventually create like a mentorship program between undergraduates and executives. But it's a very, very like new way of doing things. But if you are rejected by clubs, if you are I like looking for something to do, know that really it took me just registering for a name to to and, and a, a little bit of initiative to build my own club. And, and that's something that you should definitely try and seek mm -hmm. to do as well. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. Like in Berkeley, we have a similar environment where it's very competitive to get into school clubs. And I had a totally different experience in high school where you could just join any club. Um, like I was like pretty like good in school and like academics, like I thought I was a like top in terms of the school and whatever mm -hmm. sense. Um, and then going to Berkeley, everyone else is super smart. And then you're, you're kind of like competing to get into these clubs against all these really well-rounded uh, candidates. And when I got rejected by like 16 clubs, um, I was very, very sad, but mm -hmm. I learned over the course of like my three years at Berkeley that it's, it's okay to like start something new. Like that is more exciting to me now uh, mm -hmm. in my third year at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I definitely share the same sentiments with you with like the excitement of joining something that is maybe like new or starting something by yourself. Um, there's so much uh, you can do to contribute to your university and your community um, that hasn't been like uh, contributed yet. So I thought that was a really good point. Like your Zoom series, like I've never seen that before and I've really enjoyed watching them where you interview like all these really interesting executives. Um, yeah, that, that is like the, the essence of most of my college career. Uh, just because there wasn't that much opportunities that that was like given to me, I just had to like create all these strange opportunities and things and most of my friend groups came from that kind of like opportunity like self-created opportunities um my major friend groups of like philosophers came from this club that I was a part of leading called Meraki which stemmed from actually I, I would be at my dorm and I would create these my dorm, dorm number was 2401 Harrison. So I would call it 2401 Gatherings. And then I would just have these like very, very strange experiments things. Like for example, I would have a dinner. Um, I would bring in four of my friends, have a dinner and have everybody be blindfolded. So nobody knew who each other were, but I would have a very, very diverse group of people. So that's, they had to use their, they, they had to like, I don't think there was a, any like chopsticks or any utensils. So everybody had to use their like hand to eat food and then have to like communicate and talk about these like very, very interesting, sometimes controversial topics. Um, and in this like setting, or one time I brought every, a lot of people into um, like everybody had to teach a five minute class. And the idea was this was an event that you would learn seven things from other people and you would teach one thing to, to, other, uh, to other people. Um, and I would create these like small events, which led me to like help build this group called Meraki, which hosted these events and gatherings that, that encouraged philosophy and discussion and, and, and interesting experiments. That's super, super interesting. Like, how, how do you come up with these ideas? What's like the thought process behind this? Because I think that's super fascinating that where you blindfolded people and, and have these like really, really, um, philosophical conversations and maybe controversial conversations like what like made you create that idea for example or like any other idea um for, for that specific idea I was looking at there's a movie called about time and then uh and then they had a one of the scenes is the the guy and the girl has a double date and they go to a restaurant in the dark and then and then they they meet each other and then they have like this like romance blossom none of my events had any romance blossoms uh, but it, it was um it was taken from the same idea like the servers were all i think in the, in the movie the servers are all blind um so so it was easy for them to maneuver in, in the dark but in this case it was to simulate that same experience inside the comfort of a dorm <laughs> that's super cool um, and like for your other ideas, what I guess differentiates um, like ideas where you don't pursue them, like you're maybe like, oh, I don't really have the energy to do this versus the ideas where you're like, oh, I'm going to go full out on this idea. Uh, like what 
what I guess helps you make that decision and what's your thought process for um, pursuing one idea over the other idea? Yeah, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there is a Andrew Carnegie quote that says like every morning I, I come, or every night I come up with 10 ideas and then every morning I narrow it down to two and then pursue the two ideas. So it's one thing that's very important to like be able to have creative ideas, but cut it down so that you're able to do the ones that, that you truly are pursuing. That is one thing that I wasn't very, very good at doing. Um, every semester I would be on three or four projects uh, simultaneously and, and it was a lot of time commitments, but gradually I learned that the way to, to, to do it is just following your heart. Like I, I'm very good at starting things. I'm very good at like pursuing things, but like product design, like um, product development, that there's a similar thing of you do MVP, you do like testing. And if the testing doesn't work, if, if the initial project or you try to make the most minimal viable project that, that is possible and then you test it out. And if it doesn't work, then you, you change to another idea. So for example, I, I took on a project for like becoming a TikTok creator and teaching like one minute lectures um, on, on business topics this summer. I did it about, I did it for like four or five days and then I realized my, my following was dwindling. So, so I, I quickly <laughs> changed another, another line of, of another project, but like having the ability to like quickly turn around and, and pivot is also very important. Yeah, I think that's a great point um, that I'm going to try to do more often is like quickly pivoting when, when you realize like, oh, it's time to stop. I think that's hard for a lot of people to realize like when to stop with an idea. And sometimes they go too far in and then they don't know when to maybe, mm -hmm. you know, retest the hypothesis or their MVP. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk a little bit more about growing an organization, right? You mentioned like, oh, it's really exciting for you to like start an organization. And I also have a similar viewpoint. Like when I created my own light club at Berkeley with a few friends, it was super exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a lot of traction initially, but the thing that was really hard was maintaining that growth and like scaling mm -hmm. it even more um, at, in like a very general sense. Um, how have you, what were some like growing pains you went through when you were um, growing organizations and what were some lessons you learned for, um, I guess, how, learn for growing organizations at scale at Penn or beyond? That's a really great, great question. Um, I've experienced so many times where things that were doing very well, almost fell apart entirely. And I had to like rebuild it back together. Um, I think the, at one point I was growing three organizations, um, Global Research Consulting Group, which is a five, which became a 5.1 C3 and is now helping like 180DC, like, like Berkeley, uh, the, the one you're in, Berkeley Group, um, is creating, helping nonprofits around the world. Um, there was another one, the pending numbers in business, which later turned into two numbers in business. And then there was Meraki. Um, each was in different stage. The Global Research Consulting Group was spreading very, very quickly to different universities. And I was on the board of it. Um, and the, the way that we could grow that organization was having just inputs and, and, and first of all, it was easier because of the consulting organization. People want to be in part of a consulting organization inside seeing the demands that it had inside these regions. When you have a very strong demand, it's very easy to grow something. And then because it could bring in a lot of people, we could build up a, a global framework and it was much easier. For the pen innovators in business, it was much harder because not everybody wants to listen to or watch an interview. Um, so we had to find very, very select people that was very passionate about it. And then the people part was the, the core of, of how to scale organization. Like because we could find incredible people who could carry the torch, that led the organization to grow until it's, it's, it's uh, right now. And finally for Meraki, actually it's, it's did not scale at the end. Um, and I, I don't know if it was a, failure. It, I don't know if it's an organization that was meant to scale. It was a friend group that, that wanted to create events and create social gatherings that, that 
benefited a certain group of people. Um, but I think a huge part of that was not finding the people, not finding the 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 same kind of vision that that you want. And one of the key decisions we made was we knew of some people who were potentially interested, but we didn't think that they were a very good fit um, with the mission and the vision of the organization. And having the ability to detect if on top of growing your organization is that if your organization's mission is being kept, having that kind of ability to dissect those two is very important. Yeah, I think that last point is something that's really interesting that's not really talked about is like focusing on the mission of the club. And sometimes it's the right move to like not scale. And I had a similar uh, story like where we have this organization called Computer Science Mentors, where we teach uh, free weekly sections for our intro to CS courses. And there was like a huge discussion in our organization of like, oh, we should offer it for higher div courses. But the problem is we didn't have the quality of instructors or like volunteer student instructors who have taken those courses to teach it. And we thought that it was too risky and it would detract from our mission of giving high quality free education. Um, and I think that's the right move in the long term. Um, and I think that was just a really great point that you, you hit on was just focusing on a mission and just going back to that core idea of like a motivation behind a club and not straying away from that. Um, yeah. I, I read the Lee Hoffman's um, Blitzscaling book and, and I remember this analogy that was so, so vivid. It's like a roadrunner, or like these like comedies or, or cartoons in, in the old day where the roadrunner runs very, very fast. And then when he looks down, he's, it's a cliff and he doesn't know what to do. Like before you, you take that huge jump and run that fast, you have to also understand like what is the, is the risk and what is the, the you have to understand the entire path very well. Mm, exactly. And I guess moving on to like a totally different topic that I wanted to talk about, mm -hmm. it seems like you're really thoughtful and like philosophical. So I want to ask you a few, I guess, general, very broad questions just to hear, I guess, your take on it. Yes. Um, but like, I guess, like, what is your general like approach slash philosophy on um, living like the best life, something that makes you happy, like motivated? Like, what is your like um, approach to that? Um, at the moment mm, yeah this is a very deep question and of course I'm only 23 years old so so I don't have the best answer um definitely ask a 90 year old or 88 year old and their life experience and their their journeys often can can provide much more uh, light to this question but for me I think until now finding a ability to have flow while working on doing something is very important. Um, and, and this idea of flow is, comes from, uh, it comes from a book and, and it's describing the deep feeling that's when you, you can spend hours and hours and hours on something and not realize you're doing anything and not now realize time is passing by. And then you, you look back up and you see, wow, that's, that's, um, that <laughs> this was, I did so much. Um, having that ability to be incredibly focused on something and doing that for a consistent amount of time is one of the best feelings. And then you feel that you're, you're moving somewhere and get, getting somewhere. Um, I think that's, in my mind, a very important part of just finding moments of your life that you can be in flow and then come out of it and, and appreciating that. Mm. Yeah, that's really, it's a really great way to, to frame it. Um, like about the, the point about focusing. Um, mm. And another question I had, that yes. is a little bit different is, um, like in college, a lot of people say like, oh, it's where you like explore and you find who you are. Mm -hmm. um, I guess for you, how did you develop um, your own identity um, now? Interesting. Um... Yeah, actually, I had a very, very interesting revelation, revelation on this. Um, and bear with me, because this will take a, a little bit. But um, also, I'm not a physics PhD. So this might 
be under, I, I might be oversimplifying certain things, but I always thought that, or not always, I recently realized that life and your influences is very, very much like the Newton's laws of force. Um, and I'll explain why. Um, so when I came uh, in March, I, along with most of the students, stopped college and we have our seniors and then we had to come back home. And during that period of time, um, I was very, very nervous because I have a very, very good connection with my parents. My parents are very, very conservative about like leaving house and, and coronavirus. They live in Beijing at the time. So they were very, very nervous and they looked at the environment around them and it was very, very uh, nerve wracking. So they, they were very um, pushing me to not meet any, any single person to anything. So I had that image in mind. So I was very, very, uh, I didn't go out to eat. I didn't, I, I mean, of course I didn't go out to eat, but I didn't even go out to buy food. I didn't go out mostly. Like if I went to a grocery store, I would be wearing like five layers of like gear. Um, and then I, I stayed for a similar lifestyle for like two months. And then my aunt and uncle came in and then, and, and during this two months, I didn't meet anybody. So if you think of me as like a free body diagram, I had one force and that was my parents uh, who was dragging me into this like very, very conservative like lifestyle. And then there's another, my, my aunt and uncle came over to my house for, for a few days and they, they were careful, but they lived in Utah and they had like a little bit more lenient strategy of, of how to do things. So like they would go out, go get takeout and then they would uh, like, do certain things that like oh, yeah, they would like go to grocery stores more often, and then that, and when they left, I realized that that influenced my behavior too. Like I was more willing to to be dragged over, um, and, and feel a bit more more uh, like get takeouts or like get go to the grocery store, and, and allowed me to be a little bit more um more more free. But I realized it's very hard to have like a real life example of like a, a absolutely free body diagram. But this was one instance where for a two months period, I only had one force. And then I could see very, very clearly how another force was brought in and that could influence my decision. So going back to the Newton's second law or Newton's laws, um, the first law is like an object in motion stays in motion unless it is acted upon another force. I think that that is what that example shows. I on this idea of like being conservative in the coronavirus situation, um, I stayed put in my own beliefs until I was influenced by some other other force or influence. Uh, and then number two, F equals MA. And I think there is a very, very good logic in putting this together. I think uh, like the, the force is a, a factor of mass, which in this case, I think is how important this person is to you like for some people the present is very important um, um so that their their opinion has more influence on on what they're what they do um and also acceleration which is like how convincing or, or how how impactful or how strong is the argument and pulling you forward at least to you i think there is a way to like calculate the amount of force that is being pushed on you based off of these these factors um, and I, the, the third one that doesn't work because in, in this world of media and entertainment, if the president says something on TV, that's like the, the third one is the third, uh, law is if there's an equal and same amount of force going back at you when you're pushing something, there's the same force back at you. But if you're listening to the TV, there's no way that you're pushing back onto the TV, some kind of force. So, um, but I, I see that. Of the two other for uh, the two other laws, most of our things in our existence have some kind of way of influencing us based off of that same free body diagram. And you can calculate the force that you're pushing on different people and and pulling on different people based off that formula. My point is that um, like every book you read, every um, person you meet, every conversation you have is a kind of force that that is put on you. And when you realize that, I think our innate ability, we, we were born with certain characteristics. And I think this is, in this case, I'm thinking of like something like more like friction or like 
you, your stubbornness to, to, to change. And you have like certain kinds of like things that are innate, but most of the things that that's you develop are from the influences that, that are around you and from these different forces. So if you're looking to be more interested in philosophy, read more books on philosophy, talk to more people on philosophy, and that will drag you deeper and deeper into perspectives on philosophy and, and bring you more into those, those ideas. If you're interested in something else, I think that that's, you just need to be, be dragged into those forces and be more exposed to forces inside that arena. If you think of yourself as a pre-buy diagram, um, just looking for how you are being influenced by different forces and trying to understand them and, and interpret them in a way that develops your, like that that's, describes your own identity is I think very, very helpful as a, as a reference. Um, yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that's a more uh, philosophical way of thinking about like how to like develop or how to think about your identity. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. That was really eye-opening. Um, I never thought of it like that. And yeah, the way that you framed it with like the Newton's, uh, Newton's like first and second law is like super interesting and thinking about like all these different influences that are pulling and like and pushing right and like the mass thing that was super interesting um yeah thank you so much for sharing that um i i, I was very very I, I was very very surprised when i first like was thinking about this um but it seems like it's tied everything together and in a in a, in a more negative sense it has a, a a negative connotation too for example if you can calculate forces on how to influence people. Um, I, when my internships was working for the, uh, the, the, the presidential campaign. And if you can influence people's opinions on certain things by knowing like what kind of force, what kind of mass and acceleration to, to, to push on them, then you can very, very easily push them in the right direction. For example, Facebook finding a post by a person they value a lot with a very, very strong condemnation on something can very easily influence a person to, to move their, their, their free body diagram over because of that force. So if you, I'm sure companies like Facebook are already doing this, but that amount of data and that amount of like using equations to try to do this can be very, very interesting as a way to influence and guide people in a certain direction. Mm. So yeah, I want to explore that a little bit more uh, about that point about like like Facebook in particular about how you can like influence people in maybe a little bit more negative way. Mm -hmm. um, I think Noam Chomsky wrote this really interesting book called Media Control, where he makes the argument that um, that people follow this like herd mentality. And this was written in like the 1980s. And this was when social media was not invented. But I think like the concepts he brought up in that book is super applicable to, the, to this day. And his argument was newspapers basically control how people think in a way. Like his argument was like, people are reading the news and inherently that news has a bias, right? And that is subconsciously shaping how those people think, right? Like, let's take two examples, right? One is like New York uh, Post, which is a little bit more conservative, let's say, um, just to oversimplify things. And then the other reader, let's say, reads CNN, which maybe some people think is like more liberal, right? And those are two different like echo chambers in the sense that um, you're really exposing yourself to like only a really one area of mm -hmm. uh, like a political spectrum if we are just looking at like two sides of spectrum so i'm curious about like what are your thoughts for news organizations and i guess now big tech since big tech is very responsible for how information is spread now like they are a huge factor when it comes to information and misinformation what do you think the roles of news organizations and tech companies at large um, for this changing landscape of how people get information how people formulate these beliefs and these opinions? Like what are their role? Like, should they moderate like content? Should it be hands off? Like, what do you think is a great approach for, for those types of organizations? Hmm. This is a question that if I had to answer, I would potentially 
be a billionaire starting a new startup uh, <laughs> that rivaled Facebook. But I, I, I can say this. I think there is a there is a space that there is a lacking. Um, in in software year, I me and my friends tried to create a startup called FreeThink. The idea of the FreeThink app was um, think of a very very manly um, motorcycle gang guy, um, and he's like driving around the motor motorcycle with his gang, and then and then and then this going to different towns. And then one day, one of the people in the motorcycle gang says, "Thinks um, I really want to watch the sunsets, but." There's a problem. If he says this to his like friends in the game, um, they would think that he's weak. He's he's lost his mind. What is going on? Like you're a motorcycle person. What's going on? Um, but he really wants to see the sunset. And then on another another side of the the the, the group, there's another person who also wants to see the sunset. But there's no way for those two people to meet. Um, and I think this is an area that's. Like so, so the app at the time was to to create ways for these like two thoughts to connect and find a way to anonymously um, connect those two thoughts and help create a, a pathway for those people to to communicate and talk about things that that's even in a small group the rest of people don't know. But I think the larger points that that brings up is there there are people who feel social media has a target audience of one. So they, they target everything to one person. Uh, like they, they find every single news source or things that you would potentially like. Um, and that polarizes the entire community um, because they're, yeah, like you said, it's like echo chamber. Um, but finding ways for discussion um, and and opposing ideas inside that, that echo chamber is very, very difficult. And how can we try to solve this is one of the next generation's greatest problems, but um, it is very imperative to, to, to have a solution soon. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important point about having this open dialogue, um, especially with this like hyper politicization, at least in the sense of media. I don't think it's as large as it seems on, I guess, mm -hmm. the mainstream media, but I think it's something that has been talked about for the past four years, um, especially during the the first uh, election cycle with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. I have one interesting story that I think is super relevant to this. Uh, in 2016, I was doing research during high school uh, with a professor at Wellesley College, Professor Annie Musafaraya, who's really amazing. She's done a lot of amazing work. Um, and some of her past research involved uh, researching around like, hyper-politicization, especially towards like teens, like how do teens absorb information and what are some triggers on websites that mislead youth in particular when they're absorbing news and information. Um, so we worked on this really interesting digital literacy project to help um, young people, especially high school students, uh, be able to verify information more easily on the web, especially in the context of Facebook. Um, and we went to one conference called Miss InfoCon, and I was talking to this researcher at MIT, and I forget her name, unfortunately, but she was talking about how she was doing research on echo chambers back in 2016. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about all these mathematical models that she was using for it. Um, mm -hmm. And one thing that was super interesting was, I don't think it succeeded, like applying like these mathematical and like computer models yeah. to like break down echo chambers I, I think the takeaway from that research like when i when i checked on it like a, a few years ago was it didn't work and and that's something that i thought was fascinating like sometimes like applying like some sort of quantitative approach will not work for these really complex problems um mm -hmm. and yeah that's something that's really bothering me because i see that there's a lot of tension and conflict in the US and that's super frustrating as um, someone who cares about like, like everyone in the US and like our, our current climate. Um, and the last thing I want to ask you was just to wrap up this whole podcast. I know we talked about like a variety of really interesting topics and thank you for sharing all the stories and all like 
all of your different like um, beliefs and, and experiences. That's this has been like super educational for me, personally speaking. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to share to um, the Beyond Podcast audience that you think would be helpful? I think my main points of my experience through college is the barriers to entry for these certain kinds of like endeavors or initiatives is becoming lower and lower. The, like I said, for me to start a club, it took about two hours. For me to create a series, it took a lot of like initiative and, and work, but, but the interview side and the podcast sides really just took me like three or four hours to, to fully set up. Um, you can create a website in less than three hours or four hours. There, there, there's so like, because of technology, it is very, very easy to start a lot of these projects. So I would just say to the audience, um, give it a try. Like there are so many things I can do right now and it's very easy to try and fail and, and very, very likely will fail. But like repeating and seeing if those things work out and then moving, pivoting, moving forward and trying something else and doing things is an amazing way to grow and learn about yourself and about what works, what doesn't work and failure and success. Yeah, that's, that's super awesome. And thank you for sharing that. Um, is there anything you want to plug at the end of the podcast? Anything you'd like to share to the viewers? I know you have a lot of great things going on right now. Um, yes, I mean, uh, <laughs> we talked about this before, but uh, check out the Zoom Innovators in Business interview series. Um, if you're on Zoom Innovators, which is a group that, that college students, uh, definitely try to try to join it because there's definitely a lot of people there that you might know. Um, and then also uh, check out yourbook.app, which is one of the other companies that, that I'm trying to work on, um, which helps create a version of a yearbook for individuals. So it, it gets your closest friends and, and people around you to write a page that is almost like a, a yearbook that is especially made for you. Yeah. I think that's a really cool idea. I remember Nathan was calling you in the car about this idea. And when Nathan shared it with me, I was like, wow, that's genius. I can't believe no one has thought of this before. So I'm really excited to see um, how that turns out. Um, well, thank you for being, um, our guests for the beyond episode 10. Um, really, really enjoyed talking with you learned a lot, um, on my side. Um, and yeah, hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Ethan. This is amazing.